Chapter 19 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins, Volume 2, by Robert Paltick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 The days hanging heavy on my hands till the arrival of my family, I sent Pendlehamby word that as I had sent for my family in effects in order to settle in this country, and expected them very soon, I should be glad of his, my brother, and sister's company to welcome them on their arrival. My father came alone, which gave me an opportunity of informing myself in the rise and policy of the state, as I proposed to take several farther steps in their affairs, if they might prove agreeable and consistent, for hitherto, having only slight sketches or hints of things, I could form no just idea of the whole of their laws, customs, and government." Explaining myself, therefore, to him, I begged his instructions in those particulars. "'Son Peter,' says my father, "'you have already done too much in a short time to leave any room to think you can do no more, and as you have hitherto directed your own proceedings with such incredible success, neither the king nor Colams will interpose against your inclination.' but give you all the advices in our powers, and I shall esteem your selecting me for that purpose no small honor. Know then that this state, by the tradition of our ragans, has subsisted eleven thousand years, for before that time the great mountain Amina, then not far from the black mountain, but now fallen and sunk into the sea, roaring and raging in its own bowels for many ages, at last burst asunder with great violence, and threw up numberless unformed fleshy masses to the very stars, two of which happened in their passage to touch the side of the black mountain, for all the rest fell into the sea and were lost, lodged there, and lying close together as they grew, united to each other till they were joined in one, and in process of time, by the dews of heaven, became a glum and a gowry, but being so linked together by the adhesion of their flesh, they were obliged to move which way either would. Living thus a long time in great love and fondness for each other, they had but one inclination, lest both should be sufferers upon the least disagreement. In process of time, they grew tired of each other's constant society, and one willing to go here and the other there bred perpetual disorders between them, for prevention whereof for the future they agreed to cut themselves asunder with sharp stones. The pain indeed was intolerable during the operation, but, however, they affected it, and the wounds each received were very dangerous, and a long time before they were perfectly healed. But at length, sometimes agreeing, sometimes not, they begat a son, whom they called Peregrine, and a daughter they called Philella. These two, as they grew up, despising their parents, who lived on the top of the mountain, ventured to descend into the plains, and living upon the fruits they found there, sheltered themselves in this very rock. Meantime, the old glum and gowry, having lived to a great age, were so infirm that neither of them was able to walk for a long time, till one day 
Being near each other and trying to rise by the assistance of each other, they both got up, and leaning upon and supporting each other, they also walked commodiously. This mutual assistance kept them in good humor a great while, till, one day, passing along near Hoximo, they both fell in. Peregrine and Philella had several children in the plains, who, as they grew up increasing, spread into remote parts and peopled the country. At last, one of them, being a very passionate man, at the instigation of his wife, became the first murderer by slaying his father. This so enraged the people that the murderer and his wife, in abhorrence of the fact, were conveyed to Mount Alco, where was then only a very narrow deep pit, into which they were both thrown headlong. But the persons who carried them thither had scarce retired from the mouth of the pit when it burst out with fire, raging prodigiously, and has kept burning ever since. Arco and Telamine, the murderer and his wife, lived seven thousand years in the flames, till, having with their teeth wrought a passage through the side of the mountain, they begat a new generation about the foot of the mountain, and having brought fire with them, resolved to keep it burning ever after in the memory of their escape. And power being given them over bad men, they and their progeny are now wholly employed in beating and tormenting them. A great while after Arco and Telamine were thus disposed of, the people of this country multiplying, it happened one year that all the fruits were so dry that the people, not able to live any longer upon the moisture of them only, as they had always done before, and fearing all to be consumed with drought, one of their ragans, praying very much and promising to make an image to Calwar and preserve it forever, if he would send them but moisture, in one night's time the earth cast up such a flood that they were forced to mount on the rocks for fear of drowning. But the next day it all sunk away again, except several little bubbles which remained in many places for a long time, and the people lived only on the moisture they sucked from the stone where those bubbles settled for many years, for they found that the water arose to the height of the surface and no higher, and where they found most of those chinks and bubbles, they settled and formed cities, living altogether in holes of rock, till one Lalio, having found out the art of crumbling the rock to dust by a liquor he got from the trees, and working himself a noble house in the rock, in the place where our palace now stands, he told them if they would make him their king, they should each have such a house as his own. To this they agreed, and then he discovered the secret to them. This Lalio directed the cutting out this whole city, divided the people into colonies where the waters were most plenty, and while half the people worked at the streets and houses, the other half brought them provisions. In short, he grew so powerful that no one durst dispute his commands. 
all which authority he transmitted to his successors, who, finding the increase of the people and the many divisions of them, that they grew insolent and ungovernable, they appointed a colam in every province as a vice-king, with absolute authority over all causes, except murder and treason, which are referred to the king and colams in Musharat. As we had no want but of victuals and habitations, the king, when he gave a columbat, gave also the lands and the fruits thereof, together with all the hot and cold springs, to the colam, who again distributed parcels to the great officers under him, and they, part of theirs, to the meaner officers under them, for their subsistence with such a number of the common people as was necessary in respect to the dignity of the post each enjoyed, who for their services are fed by their masters." In all cases of war, the king lays before the Musharat the number of his own troops he designs to send. When each Kolayam's quota being settled at such a proportion of the whole, he forthwith sends his number from out of his own lasks, and also from the several officers under him, so that every man, let the number be ever so great, can be at the rendezvous in a very few days." We have but three professions, besides the ragans and soldiery, amongst us, and these are cooks, housemakers, and pike-makers, of which every colam has several among his lasks, and these, upon the new regulations, will be the only gainers, as they may work where they please, and, according to their skill, will be their provision. But how the poor laborers will be better for it, I cannot see. Dear sir, says I, there are, you see, amongst lasks, some of such parts that it is a great pity they should be confined from showing them, and my meaning in giving liberty is in order for what is to follow, that is, for the introduction of arts amongst you. Now, Every man who has natural parts will exert them when any art is laid before him, and he will find so much delight in making new discoveries that, did no profit attend it, the satisfaction of the discovery to a prying genius would compensate the pains. But I propose a profit also to the artificer. Why, what profit, says my father, can arise but food, and perhaps a servant of their own, to provide it for them. Sir, says I, the man who has nothing to hope loses the use of one of his faculties, and if I guess right, and you live ten years longer, you shall see this state as much altered as the difference has been between a lask and a tree he feeds on. You shall all be possessed of that which will bring you fruits from the woods without a lask to fetch it. Those who were before your slaves shall then take it as an honor to be employed by you, and at the same time shall employ others dependent on them. So, as the great and small shall be under mutual obligations to each other, and both to the truly industrious artificer, and yet every one content only with what he merits. Dear son, says my father, these will be glorious days indeed. But come, come, you have played a good part already. Don't, by attempting what you can't master, eclipse the glory so justly due to you. 
No, sir, says I, nothing shall be attempted by me to my dishonor, for I shall ever remember my friend Glenepsy. Sir, says I, see here, showing him my watch, why this, says he, hung by my daughter's side at Grand Volet. It did so, says I, and pray, what did you take it for? A bot, says he. I thought so, says I, but as you asked no questions, I did not then force the knowledge of it upon you, but put it to your ear. He did so. What noise is that, says he? Is it alive? No, says I, it is not, but it is as significant. If I ask it what time of day it is, or how long I have been going from this place to that, I look but in its face, and it tells me presently. My father, looking upon it a good while, and perceiving that the minute hand had got farther than it was at first, was just dropping it out of his hand, had I not caught it. Why, it is alive, says he, it moves. Sir, says I, if you had dropped it, you had done me an inexpressible injury. Oho, says he, I find now how you do your wonders. It is something you have shut up here that assists you. It is an evil spirit. I laughed heartily. He was sorry for what he had said, believing he had shown some ignorance. No, sir, says I, it is no spirit, good or evil, but a machine made by some of my countrymen to measure time with. I have heard, says he, of measuring an ab or the ground or a rock, but never yet heard of measuring time. Why, sir, says I, don't you say three days hence I will do so, or such a one is three years old? Is not that a measuring of time by so many days or years? Truly, says he, in one sense, I think it is. Now, sir, says I, how do you measure a day? Why, by rising and lying down, says he. But suppose I say I will go now and come again and have a particular time in my head when I will return. How shall I do to make you know that time? Why, that will be afterwards another time, says he, or I can think how long it will be. But, says I, how can you make me know when you think it will be? You must think too, says he, but then, says I, we may deceive each other by thinking differently. Now this will set us to rights. Then I described the figures to him, telling him how many parts they divided the day into, and that, by looking on it, I could tell how many of such parts were passed, and that if he went with me and said he would come one or two or three parts hence, I should know when to expect him. I then showed him the wheels and explained where the force lay and why it went no faster or slower, as well as I could, and from my desire of teaching insensibly perfected myself more and more in it. So that beginning to have a little idea of it, he wished he had one. And, says he, will you teach all our people to make such things? Then they would be disregarded, sir, says I. It is impossible, says he. I'll tell you, sir, how I mean, said I. I can hereafter show you a hundred things as useful as this, 
Now, if everybody was to make these, how would other things be made? Besides, if everybody made them, nobody would want them. And then, what would anybody get by them, besides the pleasing their own fancy? But if only twenty men make them in one town, all the rest must come to them, and they who make these must go to one of twenty others, who make other things that these men want, and so on, by which means every man wanting something he does not make, it will be the better for every maker of everything. Son, says my father, excuse me, I am really ashamed. Now you have better informed me. I asked so foolish a question. I told him we had a saying in my country that everything is easy when it is known. I think, says he, a man might find everything in your country. Two days after, my wife and daughter Sally came very early, but sure, no joy could be greater than ours at sight of each other. I embraced them both over and over, as did my father, especially Sally, who was a charming child. They told me I might expect everything that evening, for they left them alighting at the height of Battringdrig, for though they came out the last, yet the body of the people with their baggage could not come so fast as they did. And little Sally said, We stayed and rested ourselves purely, Daddy, at Battringdrig before the crowd came. But as soon as Mammy had seen all my brothers safe, who came before the rest and kissed Dicky, we set out again. About seven hours after arrived the second convoy from abroad that ever entered that country. I had too much to do with my wife and children that night to spare a thought to my cargo. So I only set a guard over them, for though I had now been married about sixteen years, Yorkie was ever new to me. I was obliged to the king again for some additional conveniences to my former apartment, and the young ones were mightily pleased to have so much more room than we had at home, and to see the Suicos, but finding themselves waited upon in so elegant a manner, and by so many servants, for with our new rooms we had all the servants belonging to them, they thought themselves in a paradise to the grotto where all we wanted we were forced to help ourselves to. The next day Tommy came to see us, the king having given him a very pretty post since the death of Jakambors, and Hallie Carney with the Princess Jahamel, her mistress, who was mightily pleased to see Yorkie in her English dress, and invited her and the children to her apartment. It was but a few months since my wife saw the children, yet she scarce knew them. They were so altered, for the two courtiers behaved with so much politeness that their brothers and Sally looked but with an ill eye upon them, finding all the fault and dropping as many little invidious expressions on them as possible. But I sharply rebuked them. We were all made chiefly, I told them, to please our Maker, and that could be done only by the goodness of the heart. And if their hearts were more pure, they were the best children. But if they liked their brothers' and sisters' outward behavior better than their own, they might so far imitate them. 
When we were settled in our apartment, I unpacked my chairs and tables and set out my sideboard and made such a figure as had never before been seen in that part of the world. I wanted now some shoes for Pedro, his own being almost past wear, for the young ones never had worn any, but could find none till applying to Lasmiel and showing him what I wanted, he pointed to one of the great water casks, but as there were eleven of them, big and little, I knew not where to begin, till, having invited the king and several of the ministers to dine with me, I was forced to look over my goods for several other things I should want. In my search I found half a ream of paper, a leathern ink bottle, but no ink in it, some quills, and books of accounts, and several other things relative to writing. The prize gave me courage to attempt the other casks, but I found little more that I immediately wanted. In the last cask were several books, two of them romances, six volumes of English plays, two of devotion. The next were either Spanish or Portuguese, and the last looked like a Bible, but just opening it and taking it to be of the same language, I put them all in again, thinking to divert myself with them some other time. I here found some more paper and so many shoes as, when I had fellowed them, served me as long as I stayed in the country. Having, as I said before, invited the king to eat with me, I was sorry I had not ordered my fowls to be brought, and Uworki said she thought to have done it, but I had not wrote for them. I told her I would send Malik for some of them, I was resolved, for I should pique myself on giving the king a dish he had never before tasted. So I called Malik, telling him he must take thirty men with him to Grand Volet, and carry six empty chests with you, says I, and put eight of my fowls in each chest, and bring them with all expedition." Where do they lie, sir? says he. You will find them at roost, says I, when it is dark. I never was there, says he, and don't know the way. What, says I, never at Grand Volet? Yes, says he, but not at roost. I laughed, saying, Malik, did not you see fowls when you was there? He said he did not know. What were they like? They are a bird, says I, and what sort of thing is that? says he. Yui, hearing us in this debate, Malik, says she, did not you see me toss down little nuts to something that you stared at? You saw them eat the nuts. Oh dear, says he, I know it very well, with two legs and no arms. The same, says I. Malik, do you go look for a little house almost by my grotto, and at night you will find these things stand on sticks in that house. Take them down gently, and come away with them in the chests. Malik performed his business to a hair, but instead of forty-eight, brought me sixty, telling me he found the chests would hold them very well, and I kept them afterwards in the king's garden. End of chapter 19